0: Welcome to Innovation at the Edge, a podcast dedicated to bold ideas that will build a more sustainable and resilient world. We interview global thought leaders and discuss what's new in innovation and share insights for both entrepreneurs and corporations to build more agile and resilient businesses. Tomorrow's low carbon and all electric world will be created by both disruptive entrepreneurs and large corporations. And this podcast provides advice to both on how to scale their ideas.
1: What do consumers actually want and consumers want clean energy consumers want efficient and cost-effective energy and finally they they see the importance of addressing climate change so all of this is coming together with that transition from a supply led to a demand driven energy system
2: hi everyone i'm emmanuel Lagarig, chief innovation officer at schneider electric And it's a great pleasure to have today with us Jules Kortenhorst, CEO of the Rocky Mountain Institute, one of the thought leaders in energy today worldwide. I will get into this, so it's a great honor to have Jules with us uh, today. Jules, welcome. Thank you, Emmanuel. Delighted to be here. So before we we go to what you're doing now and how you've become one of the worldwide thought leaders in in terms of energy and and especially on the energy transition. Can you tell us a bit about your your background and where you're coming from? So you're Dutch, right? That's right. I was
1: born in the Netherlands, but uh, did my uh, business degree in the United States before joining Shell. So I spent the first 10 years of my career in the old energy world. And after that, the entrepreneurial bug got me. And so I spent uh, almost 10 years building companies and growing companies with private equity backing. And then I took a brief sabbatical. And during that sabbatical, I reflected on a motivation, a passion that uh, that is sort of historical family upbringing part of my life. And that is to give back. And when thinking about how to give back to society, I concluded that climate change is the biggest issue that we face as humanity and that I should try to make a difference. So I served in parliament in the Netherlands, hoping to lead government interventions in the Netherlands. Then I became the founding CEO of the European Climate Foundation. But for the last seven years, I've had the privilege of uh, being the CEO of Rocky Mountain Institute. Our institute is almost 40 years old. It was founded by Amory Lovins, I know you're familiar with him. Amory has been a thought leader on energy transitions and sustainable energy for, for over 40 years, and our institute continues to work with many of the insights and early inspiration that he has brought to our organization and to the world.
2: Yeah, tell, tell us more about the Rocky Mountain Institute, right? So, what do you guys do on, on, on a daily basis, and how, how do you manage to be one of those most influential organizations when it comes to, to energy and the energy transition in the world? Yeah, so we are an
1: organization of now close to 300 people. We have offices in China, in India, and in the United States, but we also do work in other developing countries. Our work is all about accelerating the transition to a clean, prosperous and secure zero-carbon energy future. And we are convinced that in order to do that, you have to think about energy as a system. You have to be integrated energy thinkers. We also are convinced that you always have to start from the demand perspective. In the end, you and I don't care about buying electricity. We care about warm showers and cold beers. And for that, we need energy. And we also believe firmly that an efficient integrated energy transition can actually make the world more productive, can drive economic growth, can make the world safer and more secure, and above all, can address the major crisis of climate change. The work we do is a lot about interacting with businesses and industries at the interface of, of the market. We are an NGO, we are a non-profit organization, but we're not focused so much on the policy side of the equation, but more on markets, capital deployment, new technologies, innovation. We help businesses think through new business models. We help industries mobilize to affect change. We drive technology innovations Uh, faster into the marketplace and a lot of that work is based on our thought leadership but thought leadership alone is not good enough we're in an emergency so we need to do more than only thinking so we're also very much about the doing part how do we pilot demonstrate and then scale the solutions in the real world
2: and I guess this is this is why many businesses like like us, such as Nether Electric, come to you and to work together because you are really different. It's not only about thought leadership and policymaking or helping regulators with the evolution of policies. It's really about doing, about creating businesses, and everything you do must have an outcome which is it should be a business that stands on its own, right?
1: Yeah, we we believe that in order to address climate change, we massively need to shift capital away from high carbon to low carbon. And capital allocation in the end happens to a very, very large extent in the private sector. So yeah, we do believe that you have to build businesses at scale that provide the solutions, the technologies, the, the solutions that people need to drive a low carbon energy future.
2: So in that shift of uh, capital from high carbon to, to to low carbon, we see a lot of oil and gas majors, especially European ones, coming with a very ambitious agenda on electrification and on the lower carbon economy. What do you think about all this? What, why are they doing this? Are they going to be successful? What What, what is your, your thinking there? Well, let me first talk about
1: the the need to change. There is no doubt that we need to decarbonize our energy system, and therefore we need to stop burning fossil fuels, full stop. And these companies have, on the whole, come to grips with that. I would say particularly the European, maybe even some of the international or national oil companies have come to grips with that. Maybe in the U.S. that is slightly less the case. But these companies have come to grips with the fact that addressing climate change means stopping the burning of oil and gas. So that means, in the end, a tapering off an end to their core business. So there's a very large climate change need, but there's also a business need. Their business is not going to be around in the second half of this century if they don't make these changes. But the change they're trying to make is really hard, right, because... At the moment, these companies are molecule companies. And in order to become integrated energy companies, they have to become electron companies. That's a different matter, a different mindset. They are currently in the business of very large, complex projects, and we think that the future of energy is one of distributed decentralized smaller scale solutions many of the solutions in your my house in your my residence and in that case that big project thinking of the oil and gas companies is not totally suitable they're into long cycle projects that 20 30 40 years that are very different from the shorter cycle projects and capital investments associated with uh, new energy solutions and finally I think, on the whole, oil and gas companies have thought of themselves as supply-driven businesses, and in the future, the energy system is going to be consumer-driven, it's going to be demand-driven, and that also requires a different mindset. So this is a huge challenge that these companies are undertaking, and we'll have to see if any of them succeed in making this transition. And if they succeed in making the transition fast enough, I think that's the second part of the challenge they face, and that is to do this at the speed, quickly enough, in line with societal expectation and the shift in the energy system.
2: Yeah, because let's, let's talk about that balance between supply driven thinking and, and really what we all think. And we share that view at Schneider Electric that really what will drive the energy transition is demand. And if we really aspire to a decentralized, decarbonized and digital world, we may want to start from. From the demand, right? So to, to your point before, we we want cold beer and and hot showers, and that's that's what is going to drive. And we want it to to be done with with clean energy and resilient energy and cheap energy. That doesn't mean that that we need to have a long complex value chain where it's, which is supply pushed and driven. And maybe it's more on the demand side. And actually, if you look at that supply angle, we all all start to realize that if we just take that angle of supply, we may not get there. We may not get to the targets of the Paris uh, Agreement. So what do you think on this balance between supply and, and the demand view in this energy transition?
1: Well, you made an important point there. In order to hit the goals of the Paris Agreement, there is absolutely no doubt we first have to make more productive use of energy. So driving energy productivity is going to be absolutely critical. And it's also fun work. I'll I'll take one example of the initiatives of the Rocky Mountain Institute at the moment. We are helping lead the Global Cooling Prize, which is an initiative to identify the air conditioning solutions, home air conditioning solutions of the future. And uh, we are currently demonstrating the finalists' eight prototypes in India in a very high temperature, high humidity setting. And it's clear that the next generation air conditioners, specially designed to be efficient and not to use any hfcs can in fact accomplish a five-fold better environmental impact five-fold lower environmental impact so that's starting on the demand side defining what do we need we need the sense when we're in our house that the temperature is comfortable and that it's not too humid and how do we accomplish that and then see What is the energy that is needed? So productivity is by far and away number one. But the second thing is that we've always seen the fact that wind and solar are intermittent resources, i.e. are not always available as a big constraint. But... What if we start thinking about how to match the moment of energy use to the availability of supply rather than always think of an abundance of supply so that any demand can be met at any moment in time? And that reversal of thinking, thinking of meeting the demand, but maybe not always at the very moment that it arises, rather than thinking uh, supply driven, we have to meet any demand with an overabundance of supply, is another important aspect of that demand-led thinking about the energy system. And then third, of course, what do consumers actually want? And consumers want clean energy. Consumers want efficient and cost-effective energy. And finally, they they see the importance of addressing climate change. So all of this is coming together with that transition from a supply-led to a demand-driven energy system
2: and to reinforce your point here there's a place in the world where you see that happening already that's australia and we're working with several utilities in australia who have understood that their mission in life may not be to sell power tomorrow or to organize for this abundant abundance of supply of energy that will be used by the supply. They, they say many of them say well in 10 years from now the power we we sell will probably account for 10% of the power consumed on our grid our mission as a utility as a distributor is to the lights on and we are going to be that big software company that in real time adapts supply and demand and you could do that today with with software tools which was not the case in the past but now it's relatively easy to 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 do this
1: two important points jumping on that if i may uh, emmanuel that argues that a grid company is essentially a transaction environment it enables the buying and selling of electrons so it's creating a massive transactive infrastructure And then the second part is, you mentioned software. That's precisely the view we also have. That means that that company has to have the digital capabilities that will enable your solar panels to provide the electrons to charge my Tesla or, or fire up my air conditioning unit. We're very excited about a program that we've launched called the Energy Web Foundation. It's an open source blockchain infrastructure that will allow blockchain technology to enable that transactive grid, and Australia is one of the places where we see pilots emerging for this technology because it, uh, as a country, is clearly far ahead in uh, in making that shift.
2: Agreed. It's definitely the poster child of the energy transition. Do you want to say a few words precisely about this, uh, the, the Energy Web uh, Foundation and this uh, the application of blockchain technology to grid exchanges and to, to energy exchanges in the future?
1: Yeah, so, so our view is, uh, I think like yours, that the electricity grid becomes a, a beautiful dance between all sorts of assets that are connected to that grid. And historically, we might have thought primarily of a big coal plant or a gas plant, but in the future, we're going to think about your electric vehicle, my solar panels, your Nest thermostat, my Alexa, or any other device that controls the supply and demand of electricity. And those devices all need to be able to talk to each other. They have to know who they are talking to. So having a register that tells you at the moment you're talking to Emmanuel's electric car or Jules' solar panels becomes critically important. And that happens to be precisely the core capability of blockchain. Blockchain is a distributed register. And blockchain technology can handle very large volumes of transactions in a very secure and low-cost manner between those digital assets, those, those assets that are on the register. So about three years ago, we brought together a number of energy companies from around the world, created an f- open source software foundation that was going to build out uh, this blockchain infrastructure. The chain was launched a year ago, and we're now seeing pilots emerging around the world in the US and Europe, in Australia, in Southeast Asia, where utilities saying, yes, that's a uh, important part of the open source software environment that we want to operationalize on our grid. And we'll use the Energy Web Foundation blockchain as a core part of that infrastructure.
2: Great. Uh, and definitely, this is a very, very interesting project. And that goes in that, that direction, the direction we said of demand-driven energy transition that will only happen if a series of technologies and digital technologies, and among them blockchain and AI, are there. Is there any other project that you guys are undertaking right now at the Rocky Mountain Institute that you, you want to share that that can really accelerate this energy transition? Well,
1: it's always good to talk about uh, those technologies we already have. People talk about needing a breakthrough in storage. Well, actually, you should see the amount of breakthroughs of storage that are happening day in, day out, and the progress that they technology is making, but we don't necessarily have the perfect answer yet of how to fly planes without jet fuel or how to make steel without coking coal. So there are still breakthrough technologies needed. And we've recently launched a very exciting initiative called Third Derivative. We had in our first round 600 startups signing up to be part of this ecosystem. We won't be able to accommodate them all, but we'll be able to select 50 really promising new businesses that we think are going to create the gigaton scale technology solutions of the future. So that is an exciting innovation project that we've got going.
2: So let's talk about that transition and how it happens. So we we are clear that that the main driver, the main accelerant of all this will be demand. And businesses and consumers will define how the the market will shape. And we probably don't need to to think anymore, or, or not only in supply terms now there is this big debate especially in europe these days around around hydrogen right so so is hydrogen going to fuel our cars and our buses and 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 our planes and in our houses or is it going to be a different use of of hydrogen so where what's your thinking today on on this yeah, we are
1: quite convinced at the Rocky Mountain Institute that our cars are going to be driven on battery technology and electric motors. The EV electric vehicle is the winner. Game over. And by the way, that probably extends clearly also into distribution vehicles. It may even extend into long haul trucking, although that's the one area where, where there's still some debate. Similarly, we expect that our buildings will be electrified our buildings will become fully powered and heated by electricity and will do away with that gas stove and that hot water boiler based on gas and so on and all of that will be electricity but there always remains some parts of our economy where electrons cannot do the job or cannot really easily do the jobs long-haul shipping Maybe not the ferries across Europe, but the long-distance shipping. Hard to imagine that we have ships with batteries. Similarly, aviation, there is an emerging thinking at Airbus and at Boeing that hydrogen is likely to, to fly planes, to be the engine behind planes. There are parts of the industrial system which we cannot do without that will need hydrogen. Making steel out of iron ore, making petrochemicals will likely depend on clean hydrogen. So there are what we call sometimes the harder to abate sectors, those elements of the economy where electrons are not going to help us, where hydrogen can play a role. But we do not see hydrogen as a large-scale replacement for uh, the existing energy used in the built environment or, if, for that matter, in personal mobility.
2: Okay, I think was very clear, and that, that probably sets the debate on hydrogen on, on a much more realistic tone, right? So, how to abate sectors that are going to be very difficult to electrify, yes, the rest, let's uh, be pragmatic. And again, let's have the, the market speaking and the consumers and the, uh, and the businesses uh, speak. Let's go back to building electrification, if, if you want. So you, you mentioned that, that initiative on efficient uh, air conditioning. And you just said that while well, you, you believe and we believe the same thing at, at Schneider Electric, that ultimately buildings will be heated and cooled on electricity, on electrons full stop. Why do you get to that conclusion too? We
1: can't afford to burn gas in our house for two reasons. First and foremost, because it creates CO2, which we can't emit into the atmosphere. But actually, methane is also a massive pollutant, and NOx is a massive pollutant in the built environment. And recent research that we've helped put out in the marketplace illustrates how bad burning gas in your kitchen to cook your dinner is for your children and, and even for adults. So the answer is, replace your gas stove with an electric stove. Replace your boiler, your gas boiler in the basement, with an electric heat pump. That's clearly where we need to go. Now, the challenge is, of course, not in places like China and India, where we're going to build a lot of new urban infrastructure and where we can build it right from scratch. The challenge is, you're in my hometowns of Amsterdam and Paris, uh, where s- most of the houses are already there and where we'll have to retrofit. And that is not easy. Building codes can only go so far. There's also uh, the need to establish a whole market for suppliers and installers who don't show up at your house with a new gas boiler on the back, but show up when you ask for a repair with a, with a heat pump and are able to install that almost instantaneously.
2: Precisely on that front. So will that installer show up with a heat pump, with a solar panel and battery? How far are we from that moment where really as consumers, because we may reach a point where as consumers, we, we, we want this, we want this to happen, but our installers and the, the rest of the value chain will come like, oh, let's do, let's continue with the good old technologies I've, I've applied for the last 50 years. What do you think is, is needed there?
1: you argued for the importance of the markets and we totally agree with your markets have a key role to play in the energy transition, but there are also places where regulation and government intervention are really critical. And we, know all of this because we saw it with the light bulb, right? For the longest time, the emergence of the LED light bulb was slow and difficult until government said, you know what, it's going to be LEDs. And boom, there we were, it was LEDs. Well, similarly, we're going to need the support of government regulation and building codes to drive the adoption of these technologies in the existing built environment. And you start to see that now in places like uh, the UK and the Netherlands and California, where governments are leaning into this opportunity and are saying, we're going to help drive this transition. And then you see installers emerge and you see the skills being built and you see the value chain being stood up. And, And we are confident it can be done, but it is a little bit more complex and requires governments to be proactive, which is somewhat different from what we're going to see, in my view, in the electric mobility side, where it's going to be simply a better product in the uh, dealer room, showroom, and, and you're just going to walk away with it because that's what you want to own.
2: So before we, we continue on regulation, I'd like to come back to that point. So what about the, the impact of, of EVs? Yeah, I mean, if you project, I think this is a, this is a projection we, we worked on with you guys. If you look at... The mix of electricity consumption in 20 years from now. So assuming that we're going towards a much more electric world and you say, Hey, where is that consumption coming from? So data centers, for instance, occupy a large place and EVs, even though we would have shifted massively to, 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 to electrical vehicle, EVs would be at most 10%, 15% of the, the consumption of electricity. But we all feel that. They may have a more important role than this in the transition. What, what is your point of view on, on, on EVs?
1: Yeah, I think the first point you made is is particularly important to highlight, right? At the moment, there are the naysayers who say, oh, California announcing 2035 electric vehicle mandate. That's impossible because the grid in California is already struggling a bit. And now we're going to add all these cars to the grid and it's going to collapse. Sorry, that is just simple nonsense. California can easily build out the additional capacity needed to handle that 10 to 50% extra power demand. But more importantly, those electric vehicles have the potential of becoming a very powerful asset on the grid, a very powerful enabler of that demand-driven smart grid. Let's look at the specific situation in California. In California, much of the solar production happens during the middle of the day, it's called the duck curve. And the first thing we can therefore very simply do is to make sure that electric cars charge at the moment that the sun is shining. So that 10 to 15% is only helping to make the duck curve a little bit less difficult to manage. But the second part that in due course can become a real enabler is that we can use the battery in the car for the peak demand. So I've charged my car during the day at my office. I'm hoping to go back to my office sooner rather than later. And and our building is covered with solar panels, both on the roof and on the sides of the building. So we have plenty of sun. So I'll charge my car during the, the peak of the duck curve in the middle of the day in the office. And then I come home at six o'clock just at the moment that the grid is struggling a little bit with peak demand, and I plug my car in, and instead of charging, my battery is actually helping me to turn on my television, cook my meal, and do whatever I want to do else in my house. So that sort of interactivity uh, becomes sort of the second stage of first stage, time of use, time of charging, second charge, potentially electric vehicle batteries as an asset to the grid. But the third important point for all of this is that then we have to make sure that that grid is smart and that that battery is smart. It's back to what we were talking about earlier in the context of the transactive electricity grid and using technologies like blockchain to understand uh, precisely where my car is and what it should be doing right now. Should it be charging or should it be discharging?
2: So agree. So the, the adoption of electrical vehicle, right, is probably going to be a much more impactful accelerant of, of this energy transition, this demand-driven, consumer-driven energy transition that that we're talking about. Let's go back to regulators. Let's go back to two types of actors which are very important in what we're talking about. So one is government and the other one is the, the finance, the financial institution. So if we start with government, and if we look at what's happening today, especially for instance in in Europe around the green stimulus and, and how you create green jobs and where all that those, those uh, post-COVID stimulus packages are going to, f- to flow in different countries or, or at uh, European Commission level. What is your thinking here? Because you, you interact a lot with regulators, you try to influence them to think well and to give them some visibility, because like everyone, the regulators are, are new to that game, like all of us. So wh- what's your thinking around this? Yeah, the
1: European Greens deal It's not yet a done deal, let's be clear, but the ambition associated with the European Green Deal is very, very remarkable and is is truly setting the example for the rest of the world. Europe has clearly decided that climate change is the biggest threat to humanity and that they will play a leading role in trying to address the issue. But I think Europe has also come to realize that by being on the leading edge of this energy transition. They have an opportunity to create the industries, to build the businesses, to create the competitiveness that will help reinvigorate uh, the European economy uh, after this horrible pandemic. So I applaud the leadership of the European Commission. I applaud the ambition as it's been laid out by the German presidency. And now we need to translate that ambition and that, that vision into very tangible agreements around the mandates the specific measures, and uh, the green stimulus uh, package. I would not also underestimate the importance of a similar announcement you just heard two weeks ago, three weeks ago, from President Xi uh, from China. I think that if you would have asked most of the experts in the fields two, three years ago... They would have laughed at you if you had indicated that China might settle on a a net zero carbon emission by the middle of the century. But that is precisely what President Xi said. He said that the Chinese economy will be net zero carbon latest by 2060. And you live nearby, Emmanuel, you know the Chinese. If they say, we're going to do this latest by 2060, then they have already figured out how they're going to get it done by 2050, right? So that is very encouraging. And let there be no doubt about it. When the Chinese government says that they're going to do this, it happens. They execute, they deliver, they implement. The speed of execution in that economy is really quite remarkable. So that is very encouraging as well. Now, you would obviously ask me then, you have skipped over easily the United States. And yes, I have. I can't really answer what is going to happen here until after the upcoming elections. As an organization, RMI is fiercely nonpartisan, partisan non-political. But when it comes to acknowledging the urgency of climate change and accelerating the energy transition in order to create a competitive energy economy of the future, it is pretty obvious in my mind that a shift in federal administration here in the United States would work massively to the benefit of this country.
2: agree. Uh, And what we also observe in the United States is that regardless of the direction that the federal government may have taken over the last four years, the energy transition is happening no matter what, because it's a business-driven and a consumer-driven economy. So what type of shift have you seen happening in the financial institutions and how they look at this, and how they allocate capital, what are they looking for in terms of ESG investments? Uh, what's the impact of cost of capital for oil and gas companies today and this, this type of thing? So are you optimistic about what you see coming from from uh, Wall Street and and, and from the, the financial system in general?
1: The answer is yes and no at the same time. The good news is that many financial institutions are rapidly coming to grips with the massive risk that climate change presents for their portfolio. Two types of risk, the physical risk, the risk of floods and forest fires and hurricanes and you name it, supply chains and and access to resources and and physical infrastructure risk, but also the transition risk. The risk that we all as as humanity at some point are gonna say, oh my golly, and then force a transition much more rapidly Which will leave banks and investors with stranded assets in their portfolio. And of course, the last six months, with the oil price at some point negative here in the United States, but certainly at a ridiculously low level, that already illustrated that point. I just read today that US banks have written off $60 billion on uh, the US oil and gas sector in the last three months. So, yes financial institutions are coming to grips with that risk, and the first thing they did was commit to investing into the green assets of the future, invest in venture capital, invest in renewables, invest in project finance for the energy transition, all very good initiatives. But, and this is where my my hesitation comes, The other part, what the banks now are going to have to do, is deal with their existing portfolios. We've worked with a number of large financial institutions around the world to help them assess the temperature increase associated with the carbon footprint of their lending portfolio or their investment portfolio at most financial institutions are looking at four degrees when they are genuinely realistic about what they have financed historically. So not only do we need to invest in the new stuff, we also need to deal with the old stuff. We need to retire coal plants. We need to deal with the stranded assets in the oil and gas industry. And that is, of course, much trickier. And then I haven't even started to talk about All the steel plants that are currently massive emitters or the cement plants or uh, the fleet of airplanes around the world. So banks and investors need to transition their portfolios. That's why earlier this year, we brought together the Center for Climate Aligned Finance with initially a small subset of the largest commercial banks in the U.S. who genuinely said, gosh, we want to understand how we're going to take our portfolio from four degrees to be aligned with the Paris Agreement. And that is an enormous task that requires banks to lay out a vision of how they're going to support industry transitions in the shipping sector and in the steel sector and in the oil and gas sector, but that also is going to force them to reckon with some of the stranded assets that they currently have on their books.
2: I agree. But at the same time, I'm fairly optimistic. I mean, we engage a lot with 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 some of those institutions on this and the uh, Look okay, what we've been doing traditionally with Blackstone over the years, what the, the JV we built last year with Carlyle, to rethink the way infrastructures are being developed and how we can make them more sustainable. I see a lot of momentum, a lot of willingness to to do good and do well at the same time. But yes, I agree with you. There's a there is still a lot of lot of work, and uh, and uh, happy to help in that project. By the way, because we have many ideas, and 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 again, what we really appreciate of what you guys are doing at the Rocky Mountain Institute is that it's pragmatic. There's going to be a business outcome. It's going to be real. It's not only about the policies and and thought leadership. Jules, before we leave, any any closing comment? Any idea? Anything that we should touch upon? Well, I think it is interesting to always talk to you
1: because our visions of where the energy system is going are often so aligned. But it's that other part that you guys also see as a company, and that is that innovation is going to drive this. And there is a lot of money to be made if you lead Now, leadership is not always easy in this transition, but if you're willing to put your money where your mouth is and drive that innovation in the energy system, the opportunities are enormous. So uh, a prosperous future is appealing out there for
2: you. Thank you. Thank you, Jules. So that was Jules uh, Korsenhorst, uh, CEO of the Rocky Mountain Institute, and one again, once again, uh, one of the main worldwide thought leaders in, in energy and energy transition. So that was a great honor to have you today uh, uh, with us, Jules, and uh, thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Innovation at the Edge by Schneider Electric. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, so you'll never miss an episode. If you like this episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. For more information on the Innovation at the Edge program at Schneider Electric, go to se.com slash ventures or follow us on LinkedIn. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be undertaken as financial, economic, legal, business, tax, or investment advice. The information, statements, views, and opinions should not be construed as the provision of advice by Schneider Electric, or as an offer to buy or sell any products or services, or to make or consider an investment or course of action.